I'm Chip Granditz. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, September 3rd, 2019. Coming up, the public debate on climate change appears to have reached a standstill. Perhaps trench warfare might be the most apt metaphor. The overwhelming consensus among climate scientists is that the case for human contribution to global warming is incontrovertible, and the consequences of maintaining current behavior is widespread and severe and getting progressively worse. And so Boulder climate scientist Max Boykoff uses the very methods and tools of science itself to directly study what works and what doesn't work when communicating to the public about science. He'll share with us ideas from his new book, Creative Climate Communications, how necessary significant change in individual behavior and public policy should begin with a sound scientific argument, but requires more. Creative and adaptive behavior is needed to forge productive pathways for science, policy, and society. That's today on How on Earth. We'll begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Why is it that you can remember the name of your childhood best friend that you haven't seen in years, yet easily forget the name of a person you just met a moment ago? In other words, why are some memories stable over decades while others fade within minutes? Using mouse models, Caltech researchers have now determined that strong, stable memories are encoded by teams of neurons all firing together providing redundancy that enables these memories to persist over time. The research has implications for understanding how memory might be affected after brain damage, such as by strokes or Alzheimer's disease. Mice were placed in an enclosure with unique markings along the wall and sugar water as a treat at the end of the track. While the mouse explored, the researchers measured the activity of specific neurons in its hippocampus, the region of the brain where new memories are formed. Over multiple experiences with the track, the mouse became familiar with it and remembered the location of the sugar. As the mouse became more familiar, more and more neurons were activated together by seeing each symbol on the wall. Essentially, the mouse was recognizing where it was with respect to each unique symbol. To study how memories fade over time, the researchers then withheld the mice from the track for up to 20 days. Upon returning to the track after the break, mice that had formed strong memories encoded by higher numbers of neurons remembered the task quickly. The mouse's memory of the track was clearly identifiable when analyzing the activity of large groups of neurons. In other words, using groups of neurons enables the brain to have redundancy and still recall memories, even if some of the original neurons fall silent or are damaged. This work suggests that memories might fade more rapidly as we age because a memory is encoded by fewer neurons. And if most or all of these neurons fail, the memory is lost. The study suggests that one day, Designing treatments that could boost the recruitment of a higher number of neurons to encode a memory could help prevent memory loss. The paper is titled, Persistence of Neuronal Representations Through Time and Damage in the Hippocampus, and was recently published in the journal Science. Mycobacterium tuberculosis, the bacterium that causes tuberculosis. Let's call it MTB for short. It is the world's most deadly pathogen. 
Yes, you heard that right. MTB kills more people than any other bacteria or virus. The World Health Organization estimates there are 1.7 billion infections globally. And humans are the only known species to fall victim to the disease. Most disease-causing bacteria make you sick as soon as you are infected. MTB, on the other hand, usually persists for years. Part of the reason for this long infection is that the MTB can actually live inside the very immune system cells that typically seek out and destroy disease-causing bacteria. These cells, called macrophages, destroy dangerous microbes in specialized internal acidic pockets. But some MTB can evade this fate. A research team led at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, reported that some strains of MTB produce massive quantities of an unusual lipid that acts as an antacid. The lipid can neutralize the acids produced by the macrophages. Only some strains of MTB produce this antacid. These are the most virulent strains. The scientists hope that it will be possible to identify patients infected with these strains early by looking for telltale signs of the lipid. These patients could then be treated with drugs that can target the bacteria inside the cells. This study was published last week in the journal Nature Chemical Biology. This Wednesday evening, September 4th, Denver's Café Scientifique will host a presentation titled how to Fall in Love with a Coral. The speaker is Joni Kleipas, a marine ecologist and geologist who is a senior scientist at the Integrated Science Program at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder. Coral reefs are a vital and complex ecosystem. Nearly half of the world's coral reefs have been destroyed already, and we could potentially lose almost all of them in only the next 20 to 30 years. Dr. Kleipas will talk about how we can make a big difference with the plan to save enough reefs to reseed a future ecosystem. She will share not only how her small team in Costa Rica is restoring coral reefs with nursery-grown corals, but also how such work can restore the human fascination with nature. Everyone is welcome at these Cafe Side presentations and discussions which take place at the Blake Street Tavern in Denver, close to Coors Field. The talks start at 6.30 this Thursday night and ends around 8 p.m. Come before 6 p.m. to leave yourself time to get something to eat. As a climate scientist, Professor Max Boykoff is part of a community that has been persistently making the case that global warming is a serious problem with severe and widespread consequences, and that human activity is contributing to the problem, and significant changes in human behavior is instrumental to addressing the problem and averting disaster. 
Despite advances in the realm of science, the efforts to change attitudes, habits, beliefs, and ultimately behavior and policy has not been nearly successful enough. And so Max Boykoff, as director of the Center for Science and Technology Policy Research Studies, specifically in the realm of science, how opinions are formed, why arguments are believed or dismissed, what really works to motivate individuals to change habits, and what really works to impel societies and governments to switch policies and priorities. With global warming, the stakes could not be higher. And so this sets the stage for his latest book released just last month from Cambridge University Press, Creative Climate Communications. Dr. Max Boykoff, welcome to How on Earth. Thanks very much, Chip, for having me. I'm happy to be here. So I want to talk about some of the hot-button issues in the news today, but first I want to give you a chance to talk about how at the center um, you put into practice some of the things that you have learned in your book with something called the Green Tree Initiative? Uh, it's called Inside the Greenhouse. Inside the Greenhouse. Tell me about yeah, that. Yeah. So, yes, I am a researcher, um, but I also do experiment in these spaces as a practitioner. And so I'm really proud that um, starting this project with a theater professor, Beth Osnes, at CU, along with an ecology and evolutionary biology professor, Becca Safran, we began this project in 2012. And since then, uh, Phaedra Pizzullo, a professor in communications, has also joined us. And what we do is we experiment in these spaces to creatively communicate about climate and environmental issues to see what works, how, when, why, under what circumstances, and with what audiences. So just to give you an example or two of the kind of projects that we engage in with students from our courses at CU Boulder. One we've had now for a number of years, a stand-up uh, comedy night about climate change. Now that may at first feel like we're trivializing a critically important issue, but what we've done is we've actually tried to uh, get our students to creatively communicate through comedy in ways that can help disarm an already polarized and partisan environment. And so we've pegged it to a book that's called Drawdown, and so that the students talk about through their comedy acts or skits, stand-up or skits, how to address climate change in different, in different ways. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly, it's been over 15 years since uh, Al Gore went on the road with An Inconvenient Truth, and he was armed with data and facts and good PowerPoint slides, but that didn't appear to be effective enough. In your research uh, on how uh, ideas of climate science have uh, have been communicated and how they've been received, how they've been acted upon, and how they have been dismissed, uh, tell me some about the principles that you've learned about that you've put into practice with Inside the Greenhouse. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that film. I actually, some of the earlier work, I've been researching this now for nearly 20 years, some of that earlier work showed up in his film, so I provided some of the data for that. He had um, helped move this conversation forward to a point. Um, and he had helped to raise awareness. That certainly was a breakout moment. One of the things that I do at the university as well with a group of, there's about 18 of us in a media and climate change observatory. It's not just at our university where it's based 
here at CU, but we partner with six other universities. And we do global tracking of media coverage uh, in television, newspapers, and radio around the world. That particular period of time when An Inconvenient Truth came out was also a time where the IPCC came out with a set of big reports. Mm-hmm. And That's it, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Thank you very much. Yes, it is. And that is a UN-sponsored uh, group that the United Nations sponsored group that had together with all of that raised a great deal of media attention to climate change during that period of time. But to your question since then, I mean, the scientific way of knowing about this issue is certainly a dominant way of knowing. It's an important way of knowing about climate change. However, the work that, that a lot of social scientists and humanities scholars have been doing over decades now is to examine and investigate other pathways of knowing about this. They could be experiential ways of learning and knowing about climate change. It could be aesthetic ways through the arts. It could be visceral or emotional ways uh, through entertainment or through other pathways, through music. And so uh, what my book has tried to do is to pull these things, all these different studies with different contexts together to really help make sense and provide a handbook and guidebook of what works. So scientific pathways to understanding climate change are important, but those other pathways are also ways to find common ground to essentially address what is a collective action problem. Also embedded maybe in your question is that Al Gore is, by his profession, had been a left-of-center politician. And coming in in that way had, as some have argued, contributed to this increasing partisanship of left-right politics as as to whether one subscribes to the notion that humans contribute to climate change and what kinds of uh, impacts and so on. And so these other approaches help to provide common ground that that get around some of these political barriers. And so a lot of research that's been done by hundreds of people around the globe is what I've been able to pull together here for us to really understand what works and kind of overcome what had been this, I think, hackneyed phrase that that, uh, needs to be put to rest, which is dumbing down uh, the science, whether it be physical, natural science, social science, and so forth for the general public. You may have heard that over time, that we just need to dumb it down for the public to get it. In fact, we found that you need to vary uh, with discipline and with strategy. You need to smarten up the ways in which you're talking about these issues in order to have an effect, in order to move the needle and, and, and further inspire and engage people to confront this 21st century challenge. But I, I think I heard you mention one of the chapters of the book, maybe it was you or one of the authors you cite, that um, you need artists to contribute uh, to make an effective statement that is going to influence the public to change, and that artists are not scientists, and so they don't have to begin with a, a hypothesis and a null hypothesis uh, to, to make their case. Uh, how is the way uh, an artist is going to present ideas related to necessary action on climate change different from how a scientist would present it? Yeah, it's a great question. I have increasingly been working with artists over time. I uh, I credit Beth Osnes, the theater professor, for, for helping make a lot of those inroads. Uh, but I think it is a lot about partnerships. And so one of the things that I do in the book, one of the arguments that I make is that there is no silver bullet. People often are saying, what is it going to be that's going to 
change the way in which we're talking about and engaging with this. We've seen Superstorm Sandy wreak havoc over the power centers in the East Coast of the United States. We see Hurricane Dorian on its way to the United States, sitting over the Bahamas now. There is no silver bullet that changes these conversations. Instead, it is silver buckshot. It is partnering with artists and helping empower artists to talk about, depict, represent climate change in these other ways. And it is about essentially providing a wider expanse of opportunities for people to engage. One of the things that I get at in the book is that I do pull this together to provide a roadmap, essentially, for ways in which one can be successful. And so when you talk about artists who may have not been trained in the climate sciences, be they natural, physical, or social sciences, they still have a place in this public arena to talk about these things. They can be very authentic about the ways in which they're approaching it. Being aware of their audiences is very important. And third, among these these uh, important tenets is to be accurate. And that's where the partnerships come into play. And there have been some very successful partnerships in recent years where climate scientists have worked with artists to accurately and creatively represent the challenges that we have. So we, you talk in your book about how uh, you have to keep this issue front and center. You have to avoid uh, the uh, appearance of being uh, a nag, uh, of, of fomenting doom and hopelessness. Um, and yet at the same time, you have to make the case you don't want to dumb it down, you say. So you mentioned Hurricane Dur Dorian. Uh, I understand that uh, measured in terms of total energy, it, it may be tied for the uh, the largest hurricane ever measured. And it's, as you mentioned, it's just left uh, the Bahamas, which is devastated and heading towards Florida. Uh, if you're a, a meteorologist, a journalist, or, or an activist, or an analyst, uh, uh, how appropriate is it, and how do you take a current event like Hurricane Dorian and make associations with climate change and global warming? Is that something that you do? Is that something you avoid? Yes, it's definitely something that, that um, I do a bit of, but then also others with whom I work and others who I've uh, mentioned in the book do. If I could just put in a plug, actually, with that question in mind, do. that, that uh, on September 11th, we're going to have Bernadette Woods Plackey come to our center on campus, and she works with Climate Central. They've been engaged in a multi-year project that helps empower meteorologists to discuss climate change effectively in their broadcasts. I mean, weathercasters, maybe more in the past than in the present, are really local celebrities. We can think about Mike Nelson. We can think about uh, many others who are on the air that that we see in real life that we see on tv all the time we get very excited about this they are trusted messengers here um what i can say you know just about communicating effectively about it that what is an important uh factor to keep in mind is that climate change produces a threat multiplier with these hurricanes. There's been a great deal of scientific research that has shown that there is increasing intensity because of simply warmer ocean waters. There is wind shear that can complicate this, but simply warmer ocean waters provides fuel for these hurricanes to get the kind of energy that they have now. Humans don't cause these hurricanes, but climate change with humans' imprint contributing to it poses a threat multiplier and increases and amps up these hurricanes. I mean, at, in some ways, the thermodynamics of hurricane activity are pretty straightforward. I actually first took an interest in this because I was living in Central America during a, uh, Hurricane Mitch that uh, 
that wreaked havoc throughout Central America, especially Honduras, where I was living. And the thermodynamics of how hurricanes move is very straightforward. We know the physical properties, but the human dynamics are the complicated parts. The human dynamics of understanding and attributing these hurricane events to a changing climate, to our role in it, to what we're going to do about it, that's, that's the more challenging part. Certainly, one of the most interesting things about understanding human behavior is how humans assess, uh, quantify, and react to risk. Uh, to go back to the weatherman, you know, the weatherman is something that mentions that it's going to rain or get cold today. And for people, it's very easy to understand the risk of being caught without a jacket or planning a picnic and having it uh, rained upon. Uh, but for long-term risk, it, it's I think it's hard to understand how humans think about and react to risk. Uh, you you study this in your book, well, what are belief systems about risk? And, and it's not always what we would think of as rational. Yeah. This brings us back to early anthropology work that's been done. Uh, Mary Douglas, Aaron Wildofsky, who have looked at different conceptions of risk. There are some of us in this world who have this fatalistic view that uh, in Spanish, si Dios quiere, that if we just, you know, leave it up to the gods, we'll see what happens. There are others who uh, view their life in the world as a resilient one, that there may be these shocks, there may be these kinds of, uh, these kinds of changes that take place, but at the end of the day, we'll be okay. There are others that take up a perspective just across the spectrum that life is very fragile, that we could be like a ball at the top of the hill rolling over either side with any little bump. Uh, and then there could be people who think life is capricious, that, you know, these things will happen, it'll smooth out. So this is in a long way to just say that the way in which we individually, as well as societally, respond to risk definitely shapes the way that we're uh, addressing climate change. I, I want to talk about an upcoming issue. Uh, tomorrow night, uh, CNN hosts a climate crisis town hall. Uh, now, for activists, uh, Mitch may have some pent-up frustration that this issue has been ignored. Um, you know, the tension is mounting as uh, the big moment in the spotlight uh, may be approaching. Uh, drawing from the research you've done, what are some uh, mistakes uh, that can might be made by candidates? Uh, and conversely, what does a best-case scenario look like uh, for those interested in building up momentum or more momentum on activation uh, to active active activities to uh, address climate change. Well, I mean, maybe a mistake clearly could be to not clearly state what your plan is. As I understand it, Pete Buttigieg and Kamala Harris are still uh, working to get out some plans before these uh, these start tomorrow night. Maybe they plan to reveal them on the spot. But I think a mistake can be to uh, not treat this as a priority. The climate change isn't a single issue. Climate change is a phenomenon that is permeating all elements of our lives. It is permeating the ways in which we see immigration policy. Again, thinking about Honduras and Hurricane Mitch, if you were just a small child then, you're in your 20s now, and you're facing the kinds of challenges of destabilization in that country that are forcing you to migrate? Who would want to move to another country in another language? I think that these are questions that need to be asked. That climate change is not a single issue. So to treat it as such, I think, in these conversations would be a mistake as well. Uh, public health, job security, all these different things can, can be traced back with 
climate change as a factor playing in. But what I I do think is important is that we we do manage some expectations that there has been a lot of public pressure to uh, stage a climate debate where candidates are are discussing this with one another in a more free-flowing style. I think this is going to be, I mean, I'll even admit somewhat of a torturous seven hours. You have to really want to uh, you know, you have to, first of all, have time, which a lot of folks, everyday people don't have, but you really want, you need to sit down and listen to these 40 minute segments for 10 people from, I believe it is 5 PM Eastern through midnight Eastern. Uh, yeah. and so that's a lot of time in a day and what they are going to, my estimation turn out to be is largely infomercials. There's going to be some of the CNN journalists who are going to be able to Anderson Cooper, Don Lemon, Uh, And others are going to be able to ask some questions. But I I think we should manage our expectations that rather than a debate, this is going to be them in in over a 40-minute period of time being able to roll out and talk about the great features of their plans. So then as um, a concerned activist that has some time and effort to devote, but not unlimited effort to devote, what should be the reaction uh, after, after these plans are put forward tomorrow night? How should you uh, should you wait to see them? Should you wait to have them condensed in uh, social media feeds? Uh, should you clamor for the DNCC to to have more events directly addressing this? I think all those things are important. Um, I think the third one, especially that the DNC to push for a climate debate is really important. Um, one of the one of the things that we've been seeing um, that. I myself haven't worked on, but polling data that other colleagues have done, Yale, uh, George Mason, Gallup, Pew Center, have shown that younger people are increasingly uh, concerned about this. And that crosses political boundaries, too. Young people uh, right of center are increasingly concerned about this issue in the 21st century. And so it is incumbent upon us to, as perhaps older people, (laughs) to... uh, to be pushing on candidates to talk about this issue because sadly this this is not one that's going to be going away well our time is just about up you have been listening to climate scientist max boykoff discussing ideas from his latest book creative climate communications max boykoff thank you for joining us here on how on earth thank you That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly, Chip Granditz. Additional contributions by Joel Parker and Beth Bennett. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Joe Cocker. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Chip Granditz.